now we are going to jump in to our series. It's called Dead Man Walking. Now, as I've mentioned each week, Dead Man Walking is kind of a strange series name. I totally get that. It's, it's a phrase that's used to s- describe a person who has committed a capital offense, and they're on their way from their cell to the execution chamber. And while they're not dead yet, their death is so imminent, it's so real, that they might as well be dead. We call them a dead man walking. And we find that, that Jesus' life and his, in, his incarnate life and his ministry really can be described in the same way. He's a dead man walking. From the second that he sort of steps foot onto the scene in a physical, incarnate body, he's a dead man walking. Everything is pointing to Jerusalem. Everything is pointing to the cross. Everything is pointing to his death. And his death kind of looms over every miracle he does and every teaching that he says, every step that he takes. All of it is pointing and and directed towards the cross. And so for the past five weeks and today, our sixth week, we've been looking at six sort of defining moments of Jesus's ministry and his life, his incarnate life as he's walked towards the cross and sort of how the cross has loomed over it in all of those different ways. The first week, we looked at the spiritual high of his baptism, of how God spoke in this, in this voice from heaven to say, I love you, you're my son, and you I am well pleased. And we talked about how God speaks that to every one of us who, who submit Submit our lives to him. I love you. You're my child. And you, I am well pleased. And, and we sort of need to hold on to that because immediately following this spiritual high of baptism is this like spiritual low of the desert. And what we kind of looked at was how these two things are always connected together. That first there's baptism, then there's a battle. First there's a voice from heaven, and then there's a voice from hell. First there's comfort. You're my child, I love you, and you I am well pleased. And then there's conflict. First there's water, then there's a desert. The two of these things go together. And then the next week we looked at the core teachings of Jesus and how he proclaimed again and again and again that this kingdom, that a new kingdom was coming. And this kingdom was totally different than anything you would have expected. You think you know what's important and valuable and worthy, and and Jesus is like, nope, 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 nope. It's totally different. In the kingdom of God, those who are poor, those who are marginalized, those who experience deep grief, those who mourn and long for something more than this world, those are the people that are important and valuable in the kingdom. Jesus kind of says, surprise! It's different than you ever would have expected. And then the next week, we looked at the miracles of Jesus, that that Jesus didn't just proclaim that this kingdom was coming. He actually demonstrated that this kingdom was coming. He showed, he kind of stopped all of the the unnatural rules of death and decay. And he said, let me show you what the real rules, the natural rules of this world are. Life and restoration and redemption. And so he brings healing into these moments, not only to prove his identity and his supernatural authority, but also that to show us glimpses of what one day this world will once again look like because of his coming kingdom. And then last week, we looked at the invitation that Jesus offers to anyone who calls themselves a follower to actually come and follow him, to engage in this process of restoration for the whole world. He doesn't just want us to sit on the sidelines and cheer him on. He wants us to, like, get in the game. 
He calls us to get involved. He calls us to work towards the restoration of this whole world. He gives us his authority. And he instructs us to meet with people and to eat with them and to bless them. And in doing so, also demonstrate and proclaim that the kingdom has come through Jesus. Now today is our last week as we look at Jesus' journey to the cross. And we're looking at one of the most uh, maybe well-known parts of Jesus' journey, which is his triumphal entry. Or it's the place where Jesus enters into Jerusalem, his final week, the week that leads up to Passover, the week that leads up to his death. Now, when I was about 13, I remember I was on a a retreat for a youth group. And I remember sitting on the floor with all the other 13-year-olds or whatever, middle schoolers. And we're sitting, and the speaker had us all do this thing. He had us all close our eyes. And he said, I want you guys to imagine for a second. Just let your imagination run wild. I want you to just let, uh, think about what is the biggest thing that God could ever do for you? What is the biggest thing that you could think of? Now, for me at 13, I wanted to be a dancer. I thought it would be so cool to be a dancer in a musical. And so for me, I probably held on to something like that. I'm going to be a dancer in a musical. I got it. And then he read this passage. It's from Ephesians 3.20. He said, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. And he said that God wants to do more for me than anything that I could ever ask or imagine. That whatever I imagined in that moment, whatever I conjured up while my eyes were closed, God wanted to do more than even that. And I thought, oh man, I'm not just going to be a dancer in a musical. I'm going to be on Broadway. That's what that means. God wants to do that for me. That's what he's talking about. Now, four years later, I had an injury that took me out of dancing. And it happened just around the time where I was supposed to be doing all the auditionings for different programs and collegiate whatever and training and all that stuff. And I remember just turning to God and being like, what are you doing? I thought we had a deal. I was going to be on Broadway and you were going to make this happen for me. Didn't you promise that you were going to come and do great things? Why is this happening? And this is not the only point in my life when something like this happened. There was jobs, there was infertility, there was marriage, there was friendships, there was illness in the lives of those that I loved. There were all sorts of times when I turned to God and I said, weren't you supposed to do more than I ever thought or could have imagined? What are you doing Now, I don't know about you, but I imagine that there are places in your life where you have felt the same. Sometimes we like to hold on to our expectations and our hopes and dreams and visions for the future. We often think that we know what is best for us, and so we hold on to those things, and we just sometimes in in the best possible way, we turn to God and we say, hey, like, make this happen. We just want it to happen. And sometimes there are expectations about a relationship or how our marriage was supposed to go, 
how a relationship was supposed to play out, how someone's treatment for a health thing was supposed to result, how our career path was supposed to play out, how our life was supposed to go, how our expectations of how God was supposed to bring redemption into our life. Sometimes we have all of these expectations about how it must happen. And then it doesn't work out the way we thought, which leaves us in this like confusing place wondering, what are you doing? So what I want you to do is there's a piece of paper on your seat, and hopefully you grabbed a pencil as the baskets were being passed. What I want you to do is just think for a second of one area of your life that has just not turned out the way that you expected it to go. And I, what, your hopes or your dreams or your vision for the future, and it's just not quite happening the way you thought it would. And I want you to just write it down on that piece of paper. You don't have to read it out loud, so you can have it be whatever it is you want it to be. I'm just going to give you a second. As you finish, you can fold it in half and you can sit on it so nobody can see it. Now, as Jesus neared the moments of his execution, this is exactly the tension that was present among the people that surrounded Jesus and even those who called him followers. Now, as Jesus headed into Jerusalem, he wasn't ignorant of what was going to happen there. Like, I think sometimes we approach the crucifixion and the death of Jesus as though he was surprised by it. But he wasn't. He knew that this was going to happen. And he even tried to tell all the people around him, hey, just so you know, don't freak out when this happens because we know this is going to happen. And so we're going to be in chapter 21 today. But in chapter 20, so like right before this triumphal entry thing happens, Jesus actually turns to his disciples and he tries to communicate, them, communicate to them what was going to happen when they arrived. And this is what he said. Uh, Matthew tells us that as they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage in the Mount of Olives. Hold on. Wait, I'm reading the wrong one. Jesus told them what was going to happen. In Matthew 20, 17 through 19, Matthew tells us that now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And on the way, he took the 12 aside and he said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He's going to get arrested. And then they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. So he told them right up front, hey, this is what's going to happen. And that is pretty much how the whole thing happened. The religious leaders took him. He was arrested. He was flogged. He was killed. He knew that he was going to be put to death, and he told his followers what they should be anticipating. So you would expect 
that this journey into Jerusalem, this walk into Jerusalem would be very similar to a funeral dirge. But that's not at all how it went. Instead, Jesus' entry into the city of his execution was like a party. Matthew tells it this way. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. I love that. Jesus is like a super secret spy. He's got like code words. Tell them the Lord needs them. No problems, right? Um, tell them the Lord needs them. If the disciples, the disciples went and they did as Jesus had instructed them, they brought the donkey and the colt uh, and, the, and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches for the trees and spread them on the road, from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest! And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And really, a better translation of that is was like disturbed. They were distraught. They were like, who is doing this and what's going on? They were stirred and they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Which when they say from Nazareth in Galilee, they're basically saying, this is the prophet from nowhere in nowhere land. Here is he. And this is how he comes into the city of his death. This is how he does his dead man walking journey. Now, the fact was that this wasn't just a party. The way that Matthew tells this, the way that it's been orchestrated by Jesus and his followers is that it parallels a welcome home reception that's given to the power to a powerful and conquering king that's coming back from a victorious battle. During those times when a king would return home from war or any sort of conquest or a political tour, he would triumphantly ride into the city on a horse accompanied by all of his chariots with flags waving in the air and people shouting, Hail the Caesar! Hail the Pilate! Caesar saves! So the parallel is not lost on anyone. Instead of a powerful horse, a humble donkey. But do you know who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey instead of a horse as well? Any Bible nerds? David. In 2 Samuel, David, the king of Israel, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Instead of flags waving, palm branches are being stripped and waved high. The pathway is cleared with their cloaks. Instead of hail Caesar, they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. But there's a difference in what Jesus saw the parallels being and what the people and the crowds saw the parallels being. For Jesus, he was fulfilling what was prophesied about the Messiah in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah said that the Messiah, the king, he would come and he would ride gently and humbly on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. 
This parade was actually to help the people see that he indeed was the Messiah, the long-awaited king, the son of David. And the people got that. And with that came the expectation of what a king would do. The long-awaited king was here. See, they were Jewish people who were living in a land that had been their family land for generations and generations and generations. But, but they were actually not truly free. They lived in an occupied land. The Roman government had come in and started running this country. And they were mean and they were brutal. They were like, break your kneecaps, brutal. And year after year, they continued to raise taxes higher and higher and higher, resulting in many of their friends and their family and even their neighbors and maybe even themselves being plunged into debt and losing their family land. They continued to lose more and more and more power. So life was not a great place, and life actually felt a lot like they were slipping and plummeting down into an abyss. And then Jesus comes. Preaching about a kingdom that belongs to the poor and the powerless. Demonstrating his power to bring this kingdom through healings and miracles. The whole time he kept telling people, be quiet, shh. Whenever he would heal them and they'd say, oh, you're the Messiah. He'd go, no, shh, don't tell anyone. And so they had kept quiet over and over even though they had heard the word and they had seen the things. They were keeping it a secret. But then Jesus comes riding in on a donkey with all the fanfare. Can you imagine the excitement that started to build in them? He's not telling us to be quiet anymore. We're not supposed to keep it a secret anymore. It's happening. It's happening in this moment. He's living out who we believe him to be. It's going to happen. If I was a disciple, I'd be like standing next to that donkey and I'd be like, it's happening. We did it. We did it. Clearly this means he's the king. Everything's about to change. Romans, you better watch out because here we come. We're going to kick you out of here. I'm getting my land back. I'm getting my family back. No more taxes. We're coming out of the abyss and into the kingdom. And you remember what they were shouting? People were shouting, Hosanna. Now, for the longest time, I thought that that just meant, hooray, hooray to the son of David. Hooray. I don't know why they don't translate it in the Bible. I don't know why they keep the original Aramaic word. But, but it doesn't, um, the Hebrew word, but, but it doesn't actually mean hooray. It has meaning. It comes from two words. It comes from hosa, which means God help us, save us, deliver us. And na, which means we pray. Now, please. It gives it this urgency. It's rarely a religious word. It's actually a political word. And so when they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, they're shouting, God, save us now. King, save us now. We need your help now. From what? Roman rule. Set us free from the oppressive rule of Rome. Kick them out of power and put us in power. See, they thought that this was how the kingdom of God would come. They had these expectations. That they would take power and set the world up the way that it was supposed to be. The way they had expected. The way they had imagined their future and their hopes and their dreams to actually play out. And so when they were shouting for Hosanna and cheering for this king that was riding in on a donkey, they were cheering for a king that would help them live out their understanding of their future. And their understanding of their hopes. All the signs point to the fact that Jesus was ready to do what they expected him to do. 
but Jesus didn't. Right after this, instead of removing the Romans from power, Jesus goes into the Jewish temple and he started reprimanding the Jewish people, his people, for the way that they had desecrated his temple. Then Jesus goes and he like cursed the fig tree for not producing fruit. And then he gets into like this verbal fight and altercation with local religious leaders. None of this anger or upsetment is pointed at the real enemy, the Romans. None of it is directed at the government. And instead of rising up to become the new king, he allows himself to get arrested by the ones that were supposed to be overthrown. He wasn't doing at all what they expected him to do. So within a week, the crowd grew tired of it. His popularity waned because he proved himself not to be the warrior king or the Messiah that they expected. They assumed he's just another fake Messiah. He's just another fake king. They'd seen those before, and they were tired of it. And they made sure that Jesus knew it too. So when the governor, who didn't believe that Jesus had done anything wrong, tried to step in to set up an opportunity for Jesus to be released, this is what happened. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 15, Matthew tells it this way. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had all well-known prisoners. They had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So this is a different Jesus. So when the crowd gathered, Pilate asked them, which one of you do you want me to release? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who you call the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to have Je- and have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then to the one that you call the Messiah? Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now in this, we discover that on the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowds were not cheering for a king who had come to lay down his life. They were cheering for a king who would set them free from the oppressive rule of Rome. They were cheering for a king who would help them live out their vision of the future. And when Jesus didn't meet their vision for the future, the very same crowd who had shouted, Hosanna, one day, was now shouting, crucify him, a week later. What they didn't understand is that Jesus had come to provide a totally different kind of freedom. He had come to secure a future that they could not possibly imagine. See, what Paul says in that passage I read earlier, that Ephesians 3.20 passage, is true. God is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever think or imagine. 
But our imaginations and our thoughts and our hopes aren't often calibrated to the degree to which God can do. We kind of have our version of what that is, and God has his. See, he didn't just come to set one group of people free from a particular government, but to set the entire world free from all bondage, from now and forever. He didn't just come to take away the pain that you're experiencing right now, but to end all pain for all of humanity forever. He didn't just come to give us more money and more security and more happiness, but he came to give all of us himself, which is the only thing that will satisfy. He didn't just come to give us a better life. He came to give the world everlasting life. Now, this is how Paul frames it in Ephesians 2, 12 through 13 and 3 through 12. He says, remember that at the time you were separated from Christ, you were without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In him and through him, and in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with confidence and freedom. Now here's the crazy thing. It's right after this passage that Paul says the thing about God is able to do immeasurably more than you could hope or imagine. He's not talking about being a Broadway dancer. He's talking about being reconciled with God. That the thing that is beyond our hope and beyond our imagination is that he would send his son to die and give his life and lay down his life so that we could be reconciled, so that the world could be brought together in unity with God. This is the big grand mission that Jesus is on. This is the biggest thing that could blow all your imaginations, that God created a way for those who were far away from him to be brought near. And this is what was worth Jesus laying down his life so that we could all have life. Through shedding his blood, we can have hope and we can have freedom. Now, sometimes we are just like the shouting crowds. We have our agenda and our vision and our hope for what the future should be, and we expect that Jesus is going to make it all happen for us. Come on, Jesus. Come on. But following Jesus actually involves laying all of that down. The palm branches that were placed at the feet of Jesus need to be our hopes and our dreams and our expectations for the future. We've got to lay them down at his feet. We need to surrender them. We need to allow Jesus to possess them and to possess us. So here's my question for you. The hopes and the dreams and the expectation for the future that you wrote down on that piece of paper. Are you willing to lay that down at Jesus' feet? Are you willing to let that go? Will you bring it to the feet of the one who you cry, save me, king, now? We're going to take communion today, but we're going to do it a little bit differently than we normally do. For communion today, we're actually going to have a communion tray, or our ushers hold a communion tray at either corner of the room. 
And what I want to invite you to do is to actually take your green piece of paper where you wrote that hope, that dream, that expectation. And I want you to bring it to, symbolically, the feet of Jesus. I want you to place it at the feet of the person holding the communion tray as a way to symbolize, I, I give this over to you. I surrender my expectation of what this whole thing is supposed to look like. I lay this down at your feet. And then I want to invite you to take the wafer that symbolizes Christ's body and the cup that symbolizes his blood. And I invite you to take that back to your seat as a, as a way of saying, I'm in the yes position to lay down my life to receive the way you laid down your life. And bring it back to your seat, and we will take communion together as we have been doing the past couple weeks. But just allow the truth of God from the song to wash over you, to allow your heart to come in submission of laying those things down at Jesus' feet and letting go of them. Now, the coolest part of this whole thing is that when we give something to Jesus— He doesn't just like kick it to the side and say, good, that's out of the way. No. What happens is is he takes it and he redeems it. And he does something more than we could ever think or imagine. Which doesn't just mean dancing on Broadway. It's something so much more glorious that fits into this kingdom life. That fits into what the whole world is pointing to. He transforms it into something that's beyond our wildest imaginations. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you didn't just settle for our versions of how things are supposed to happen. You know so much better. But sometimes it's really hard to let go of those things. Because sometimes they're so emotional and they're so personal and they're so ingrained in who we thought we were. So, Father God, would you just uproot those things in our lives? Would you give us the ability and the courage and the boldness to release it to you, to lay these expectations at your feet and and sort of admit that you have something better planned, trust that you have something better planned, even though we can't see it. Even though the disciples had been told exactly what was going to happen, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see that you were going to rise from the dead. They couldn't see how glorious that could have been. And so, Father God, we we look at our lives and we say, God, you want to do something even more glorious, even more amazing, and we trust you to do that. And so will you speak to us this morning? Will you allow us to hold on to the truth that you give, that you are God and you are good and that your goodness is running after us? We pray all of these things.